This is an audio version of A Stylized Dialogue on John Wentworth's Claims About Markets and Optimization by Nate Suarez, published on the 26th of March, 2023. Cross-posted from the AI Alignment Forum may contain more technical jargon than usual. This is a stylized version of a real conversation, where the first part happened as part of a public debate between John Wentworth and Eliezer Yudkowsky, and the second part happened between John and me over the following morning. The below is combined, stylized, and written in my own voice throughout. The specific concrete examples in John's part of the dialogue were produced by me. It's over a year old. Sorry about the lag. As to whether John agrees with this dialogue, he said, There was not any point at which I thought my views were importantly misrepresented, when I asked him for comment. Audio note, this is structured as a dialogue between J and N, or John and Nate. John. It seems to me that the field of alignment doesn't understand the most basic theory of agents and is missing obvious insights when it comes to modelling the sorts of systems they purport to study. Nate. Do tell. I'm personally sympathetic to claims of the form, none of you idiots have any idea what the fuck you're doing, and I'm quite open to the thesis that I've been an idiot in this regard. John. Consider the coherence theorems that say that if you can't pump resources out of a system then it's acting agent-like. Nate, I'd qualify agent-like with respect to you, if I use the word agent at all, which I mostly wouldn't, and would caveat that there are a few additional subtleties, but sure. John, some of those subtleties are important. In particular, there's a gap between systems that you can't pump resources out of and systems that have a utility function. The bridge across that gap is an additional assumption that the system won't pass up certain gains, in a specific sense. Roughly, if you won't accept one pepper for one mushroom, then you should accept two mushrooms for one pepper, because a system that accepts both of these trades winds up with strictly more resources than a system that rejects both by one mushroom, and you should be able to do at least that well. Nate. I agree. John. But some of the epistemically efficient systems around us violate this property. For instance, consider a market for, at least two goods, peppers and mushrooms, with at least two participants, Alice and Bob. Suppose Alice's utility is defined by a formula, Alice's utility, UA, with respect to PM, is defined as equal to log 10 of P plus log 100 of M, where P and M are the quantities of peppers and mushrooms owned by Alice, respectively, and Bob's utility is utility of Bob, or UB, with respect to PM, defined as equal to log 100 of P plus log 10 of M, where P and M are the quantities of peppers and mushrooms owned by Bob, respectively. Example equilibrium. The price is three peppers for one mushroom. Alice doesn't trade at this price when she has three log prime 10 of P equals one log prime 100 of M. That is three natural logarithm 10 over P equals one log 100 over M. That is 3 over p equals 2 over m, using the fact that natural logarithm of 100 equals the natural logarithm of 10 squared equals 2 the natural logarithm of 10. That is, when Alice has 1.5 times as many peppers as she has mushrooms. Bob doesn't trade at this price when he has 6 times as many peppers as mushrooms, by a similar argument. So these prices can be in equilibrium whenever Alice has 1.5 times as many peppers as mushrooms, and Bob has six times as many peppers as mushrooms, regardless of the absolute quantities. 
Now, consider offering the market a trade of 25,000 peppers for 10,000 mushrooms. If Alice has 20,000 mushrooms and thus 30,000 peppers, and Bob has only one mushroom and thus six peppers, then the trade is essentially up to Alice. She would observe that log 10 of 55,000 plus log 100 of 10,000 is greater than log 10 of 30,000 plus log 100 of 20,000. So she, and thus the market as a whole, would accept. But if Bob had 20,000 mushrooms and thus 120,000 peppers, and Alice had only two mushrooms and thus three peppers, then the trade is essentially up to Bob. He'd observe that log 100 of 145,000 plus log 10 of 10,000 is less than log 100 of 120,000 plus log 10 of 20,000. So he wouldn't take the trade. This example of two cases where a market's decision about a trade differs depending on hidden state relies on the initial wealth distributions being unequal. Legends hold that there are other examples where the hidden state doesn't depend on initial differences if the utilities aren't logarithmic. John Wentworth tells me he cares in practice about this additional fact and notes that further information can be found in the literature under the heading of non-existence of representative agents. I have not myself constructed such an example and would be interested if someone has a simple one. Thus, we can see that whether a market, considered altogether, takes a trade, depends not only on the prices in the market, which you might have thought of as a sort of epistemic state and that you might have noted was epistemically efficient with respect to you, but also on the hidden internal state of the market. Nate. Sure, the argument was never every epistemically efficient with regards to you system is an optimizer, but rather sufficiently good optimizers are epistemically efficient with regards to you. John. You might be missing the point here. You can appeal to you can't pump money out of the system to get a type of weak efficiency, but you Miri folk seem to think that can't pump money out arguments also imply a form of strong efficiency that things like markets lack. Nate. I agree that you can't pump money out does not suffice for utility function and that you need an additional it doesn't pass up free money constraint to bridge the gap. And I concede that I sometimes use you can't pump money out of it as a pointer to a larger cluster of criteria and sometimes in a way that elides a real distinction and sometimes because I haven't been tracking that distinction carefully in my own head. For the record though, I expect AI systems that are capable of ending the acute risk period do not pass up on free valuables. So I admit I'm not sure why you're focused on this distinction as important. Do you think we have a disagreement beyond the point about me sometimes playing fast and loose with coherence constraints? John. I still suspect you're missing the point. In real life, systems that control valuable resources tend to have the property that you can't pump resources out of them, for the obvious competitive reason. But there's no similarly compelling reason for things to avoid having path dependence in their preferences, as you'd find in a market. Nate. Hold up. The obvious reason for optimizing systems to avoid path-dependent preferences is so that they avoid passing up certain gains, a property I expect a market made of sufficiently competent participants to possess. John. In which case, we have a disagreement, yeah. Which, well, I proved my point a few paragraphs ago and you seem to agree? So I admit I'm confused by your position. To refine my own position, aggregate systems of agents do not in general act like an agent. That's what I've been trying to say here. The condition that you can expect lots of systems to possess in real life is a weak, no-money-pump efficiency property. 
The strong efficiency property, takes certain gains, is much rarer and is lost the moment you start aggregating agents. Indeed, once you notice that you shouldn't think of a market as an agent in the VNM sense, you're only one step away from the conclusion that you shouldn't think of the constituent parts as agents either. When you look closely, even the market participants are probably better modelled as weakly efficient market-like systems rather than as agents. Nate, whoa, hold your horses there. Optimising systems that are epistemically and instrumentally efficient with regards to you, which I suppose I could suffer calling agents in this context, totally aggregate into other agents. John, have you failed to internalise my argument from above? Nate, nobody ever said that a collection of participants P, each with preferences over a set G of goods, have to aggregate into an agent that also has preferences over G. The obvious guess is that the market aggregates into something more like an agent with preferences over functions from P to G, that is, over different assignments of goods to each participant in the market. Like, it's completely respectable for the market to value Alice gains 25,000 peppers but loses 10,000 mushrooms, differently from Bob gains 25,000 peppers but loses 10,000 mushrooms. It will look like it has a bunch of hidden state about who has which resources, when you consider only the resource totals. But that's just an artefact of looking at the wrong outcome space. As an aside, I have a better sense now of why I might want some sort of epistemic efficiency implies instrumental efficiency argument. Intuitively, this seems like the sort of thing you might want when looking at optimizers that are themselves aggregates of smaller optimizers. Which is an update for me, thanks. More specifically, I was not tracking the way that markets should look instrumentally coherent and my, quote, epistemic efficiency isn't necessarily supposed to imply instrumental efficiency argument now seems off base. John. Okay, yes, you can think of the market as having preferences over assignments of goods to participants, but then you still lose agency. For example, consider the trades in that extended outcome space. Alice loses one pepper, Bob gains two mushrooms. And the trade, Alice gains three peppers, Bob loses two mushrooms. The market won't take either of these trades because Alice isn't willing to take the former and Bob isn't willing to take the latter. And this is exactly an instance of an aggregate system that satisfies weak efficiency. It has no preference cycles and you can't pump money out of it, but violates strong efficiency. The order dimension of its preference graph is not one and it passes up certain gains. Aggregates of agents aren't agents. Nate. Oh, yeah, I flatly deny that. John. It's a theorem? Nate, it might be a theorem in Earth's version of economics, about Earth's version of economics' version of rational agents who use broken decision theories. It's false in real life, and when aggregating agents smart enough to use better decision theories. John, I'm not sure how you expect to swing that. Utility functions are defined only up to affine transformations, so you can't just say, do whatever leads to the higher aggregate utility. I don't see how you'd break the symmetry between different offers while respecting the invariance of utility functions up to affine transformations. Nate. Sure, I'm not saying you can figure out how to aggregate a bunch of agents into a superagent by looking at their utility functions alone. You need to take some other structure about the agents into account, such as information about what each agent thinks is fair. See, for example, the relevant Dathilani papers. Hopefully there are canonical solutions. For instance, in an ultimatum game, the shelling fair point is that both participants get utility halfway between their best and worst deals, 
which solution is invariant under affine transformation. Knowing that agents are willing to accept these canonical solutions as fair, in quotes, does not seem like a large additional burden of knowledge. John. Ah. Hmm. To spell it out more precisely, what happens in real life is that Alice and Bob accept both trades, and then Alice gives Bob a pepper, and now they've achieved the certain gain of plus one pepper apiece. Or, more generally, they do something that is at least that good for both of them within the constraints of what they agree is fair. Because why would either settle for a strategy that does worse than that? In real life, aggregate agents don't pass up certain gains of valuable resources, because they value the resources. John. I see. Okay, well, note that this assumes that side-channel trades can occur at prices other than the market prices. Nate. Yeah, side-channels that the agents would fight to establish so that they can take advantage of certain gains. Although, of course, logical decision theorists don't need to be able to make side trades to accept such bets, and they'll keep taking advantage of certain gains even if you forbid such trades. Like, if Alice and Bob have common knowledge that the market is either going to be offered the trade, Alice gains a million dollars, Bob loses one dollar, or the trade, Alice loses one dollar, Bob gains a million dollars, with equal probability of each, and they're not allowed to trade between themselves, then they can, and will if they're smart, simply agree to accept whatever trade they're presented, because this joint strategy makes them both significantly richer in expectation. Again, these are smart folk who value resources. You can argue all you want about how they shouldn't be able to get the extra money, but don't count on those arguments holding up. Like, there's a mental technique here of asking, if the participants in the markets were all actually as smart as me and deeply driven to get more goods, could they somehow find some way to wind up richer? Argue as you may, the aggregate markets of Dathilan still won't pass up certain gains of valuable resources that you can easily point out. John. This is something of an update for me, I admit. Although, I note that, for all your highfalutin arguments about Dathilan, none of them are going to convince the pancreas and the thalamus to start making side-channel ATP trades at price analogues that differ from the equilibrium. Nate. Indeed, it's no coincidence that artificial intelligence is an X-risk and pancreases are not. John. Ah, but the pancreas-thalamus interaction can tell us something about intelligence, as can the study of the energy market of sorts inside a bacterium, as can the Earth's best financial markets, populated as they are by poorly coordinated constituents who might not decide to use logical decision theory, even if they knew they had the option. Agents might be normative, but descriptively, the world is full of systems that you merely can't pump money out of. Nate. Okay, sure. But that's a vastly weaker claim. I happily endorse the descriptive claim, lots of modern optimizers are even worse at taking certain gains than they are at avoiding money pumps. I don't see this as particularly relevant to alignment research, but I believe it. John. I see it as quite relevant to alignment research. I'm hoping to learn quite a bit from bacteria and markets that generalizes to humans and artificial intelligences. Nate. That sounds like a disagreement for another day. As for today, I'll settle for you retreating from the position that I'm lacking a basic understanding of the objects I wish to study, and from the position that intelligent agents don't aggregate into an agent, and relatedly from the position that markets beat agents as a model of capable optimizers. John. 
I'll just point out again that if you want to learn what human values are, you need a descriptive theory of humans rather than a normative theory of intelligence. And I still bet that weak efficiency is a better descriptive model of most humans than agenthood. This was an audio version of A Stylized Dialogue on John Wentworth's Claims About Markets and Optimization by Nate Suarez. Published on the 26th of March, 2023. This reading was by Perrin Walker and produced by Type 3 Audio.